You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast about the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, a very special episode where me and Martin run down our top 10 movies of 2021. There's blood, there's car fucking, there's last duels. Martin. Yes. Please take off your pants and join the orgy. Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, how you doing, baby girl? I'm doing all right. How's it going? Ooh, it's a new year, girl! Going going, going back into the the new... I was thinking semester terms, like after the holiday. Yeah. I'm like, oh, it's the new semester. It's like, I'm 38 fucking years old, but... God, I guess I can't imagine going back to college at this point. It would be some real old school shit. Oh, yeah. I'd be down for it, though. If you and I are like, hey, we're going back, like... Yeah, we have to do it together. You think so? I would definitely be more Luke Wilson than Vince Vaughn, though. You would be Vince Vaughn. I think I would. Yeah, yeah. that's weird though. <laughs> that you just totally cop to it. You're like, oh yeah, I, I run an illegal stereo city. It's <laughs> <laughs> evading taxes. Anyway, um, what did you think overall about 2021 as a year in movies? Because that's what we're here to do. We're here to run down our personal top tens of the year. It was definitely, I mean, a weird year for obvious reasons um and looking through my list and just thinking of the films i watched this year number one i realized i didn't watch a whole lot of new stuff this year and i think part of that was a product of the podcast where i was watching a lot of older films a lot of films for the first time based on you know things you wanted to watch or that i was re-watching for myself and going down rabbit holes of like i watched a lot of howard hawks this year and and things like that but in terms of like new theatrical experience is usually where I like to see new movies that was limited because of, of COVID. Um, but it's kind of, it's just been such a weird year. It's hard to look at it holistically. And also this year feels like it's 10 years long. Sure. <laughs> you know, um, overall, like it wasn't a year of bangers for me where I was just like, Oh shit, this was like, I can't even count how many awesome films. And I think part of it might just be my waning interest in, like IP filmmaking too. Like I saw all of those and for a long time, I think I've held out on liking Marvel. Like I, I still liked Marvel through yeah, all of you this. Still, you see all of those in the theaters. I, I, I've skipped for the first time Eternals. That was the first one I skipped. Sure. And since 2008. So, oh wow. So yeah, I saw every single movie opening weekend or early. Gross. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and part of that was, that I have a secret handshake kind of thing with my friend, Charlie. We, we see them together and, and, we both like to talk about what happens, but I think that that'd be more of a water cooler thing. Water, like, that's not yeah, right. that's not secret handshake. Yeah, um, but I think it put was some a, respect a, on its name. A mix of of like a film like Spider Man No at Home, which is perfectly fine, um, with 
That's the most negative reaction I've heard about it. Like everybody else, like is just jerking off and jizzing everywhere. Yeah, it's um, it is as good as Spidey that, ropes. It is as good as that kind of movie can be. Sure, it is my so it, like, but they're comparing it to Spider Man Two, and I'm getting really angry because <laughs> an actual filmmaker made Spider Man Two. An actual filmmaker, and I mean Spider Man One and Two by Raimi are just fantastic films, and they have personality. And they're weird, and they're fun, and they're comic booky in the right way. I'm not going to argue that three is a good movie. I think it's it's definitely very uh, junky, um, and obvious that he didn't really want to make it that much. Yeah, but that all, one is also very weird and has way more personality than the average uh, MCU entry. It's not good again, but it, it's there. Like I like emo Peter Parker. Oh yeah, they call him uh, Bully. I think it's Bully Parker is the new name. <laughs> they did like a bunch of like memes and shit where they've cut him into other stuff. But sure, I think it was that Pete mixed- Wentz Parker. <laughs> I, I think that and a, a, an actual common culprit this year for big blockbuster movies, which is what I like to watch mostly, um, among other things, but is. HBO and Warner Brothers that I, I don't I think it was the kind of films they were putting out because I, I disliked the majority of what did the day and date releasing on on HBO Max like besides it was a mixed bag besides I, I liked I love Matrix and I love Dune um, but there's other ones like the Mortal Kombat Godzilla versus Kong like things like that were I really like Godzilla versus Kong I didn't I, I didn't watch uh, Mortal Kombat but I, I see where you're kind of going with this, um, but I also have an internal debate with a lot of them, too, is that uh, what would these movies actually look like or what would our reception to them be like if we had seen them in mov- like movie theaters, yeah. you know, because I feel like the reception is somewhat muted because we were, were watching them at home. No, I would totally agree. And I think it, and in some cases I'm being unfair to those films, Um I think if I saw Mortal Kombat, which I didn't like, but if I saw that on a Friday with some friends and a couple of beers, the Alamo would have been a much different experience than right. You know, I think my brother and I watched it together. We did it like virtually, and we both were just like, "What the fuck was that?" And just it was objectively a bad movie, but I think that that would have been different. I mean, definitely Godzilla versus Kong. Um, I think would have been a much different experience. On the, I mean, that's meant to be seen. That's a fucking epic. You know, yeah. two kaiju fucking beating the shit out of each other. And I mean, like, I watched that movie while I was folding laundry. So that obviously dulled the impact of it. But I, I still think that a film is a film and, and, and stands on its own merits yeah. regardless of, like, how you watch it. Because I think of how many movies that I actually experienced on, like, VHS for the first time yes. that are still, like, my favorites and or cable or any of that. It's just a, a different method of, of injecting them into your eyeballs, let's say. But, like, uh, let's not spend too much time on the format wars, let's say, because we have both have top 10 lists and honestly they are not wildly different, but we don't have that much overlap. We just compared notes before we started recording and it turned out we only share three. I think, I think, it's, I think it's just three. Yeah. So you want to go first with your, your number 10? Yeah. Um, so number 10 for me was last duel, which is my number six. Okay. So we, um, Ridley Scott, you know, back again. I watched it with you. We watched it the night before Thanksgiving. I remember um, at like midnight. At like midnight, you're like, "Hey, you want to watch Last Duel?" I said, "Absolutely, I do." And it's just, I really, 
I love the mix of the kind of Rashomon storytelling of seeing this horrible event through, you know, three sets of eyes and then just some really amazing Ridley Scott action filmmaking. Like, I mean, the fact that because your dad was there and I, I think I woke him up because you did. He was sleeping in the house and he on the other side of the house, on the other side of my house. And he complained to me, not complained, but jokingly said, like, I don't know what the fuck you guys were watching last night, but Martin was losing his mind for it. And I know exactly the shot that it was. It's in one of the early battle sequences where Matt Damon, like, drives a spear through a dude's head because I even jumped up off the couch and was like, holy shit, man. Yep, that was those the one. He puts the spike in the ground, rams his head on top and slides it down. Oh, slams so it down fucking the neck. great. And... I really liked, um, I think it's a difficult task to tell a story three times and keep it interesting. Um, and part of that is... It's a great script. It's a really great script, which, you know, uh, Nicole Hollis Center with uh, Ben Affleck and uh, Matt Damon. The boys. The boys. Um, and I think beyond the script, though, is... Ridley, who I don't think it's enough credit for the way he works with actors, is there's some really great subtle diff. I, I Which think- is sort of funny <laughs> since you say it out loud, just because of the famous Harrison Ford quote of he cares more about his sets than his actors when he made Blade Runner. Well, yeah, I would I imagine so, but I think he's regardless he's gotten good performances. You no, know, he is he's underrated with actors. Let's say yeah, and he- obviously actors and movie stars in particular like love to work with him. Absolutely. I mean, he has people like um, fucking Russell Crowe work with him numerous times. And uh, obviously, um, was Sigourney just once or is she done it again? No, she's, she's just alien, right? Yeah. But you have, I mean, but she almost Cameron, all of his yeah. movies have a huge name in it. You have Sigourney and Alien, Michael Douglas and stuff like Black Rain. Even things like you just brought up Russell Crowe, but he's in uh, A Good Year, that not very great uh, romantic sort of melodrama comedy yeah. he made in the mid 2000s about wine country. And it's like people obviously love to work with him both because I admit, I think he is better than with actors than, than his reputation would suggest, let's say, but also him and his brother, his late brother, Tony, uh, were great with just making people look great on fucking screen. Yeah. Like, if you were a movie star and you were in a Ridley Scott movie, you knew he was going to make you look amazing. Like Legend, one of the most gorgeous movies ever that looks, is like nails on a chalkboard to me, but Tom Cruise looks amazing in it. Yeah, he, um, well, I mean, Michael Douglas never looked better, I think, than in, well, tied with Basic Instinct. Um, I think those are the two, but Black Rain and then... And Disclosure. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I love that movie. Um, Jesus. But, but he... Um, Watching Scott, even you know, is a much advanced age. Like he still fucking got it, you know. Like he's and And he made two movies this year, two movies with huge movie stars in them. Because House of Gucci is the movie that's like my biggest regret that I didn't get to see yet. I still haven't seen House of Gucci, but that thing is just studded with. Al Pacino, Lady Gaga, Jared Leto, Adam Driver, Jeremy Irons. It's just like, what the fuck? But it, again, it's just people sign up. They're like, oh, Ridley Scott's still doing it. I'm going to do it with him. There, there's something about him, too. Watching Last Duel, you were talking about his sets, you know? Right. And I don't think I can think of another modern filmmaker 
who does a better job of like shooting antiquated, making things look old. Like you watch a film like Troy, Wolfgang Peterson, which has its fun moments, but like the sets look they were there yesterday. It feels modern. It feels like it was just like, oh, cool. I can see the like cut marks and everything. And Scott, like you think of the shots from like Blade Runner and Alien, he's packs the screen with information. It's like packs the set. And I love just the detail of everything. Um, he's the greatest at opulence on screen. Absolutely. And, and also just epic. I mean, he really is. Yeah. Cause it, this is a two and a half hour movie. It's huge. It's, it's just big as a story, thematically big too, but also like there's these giant battle scenes, like, and they're not the focus of the movie. They're no. like an afterthought. It's, a rape uh, is. The, that's the center of the movie. Um, and, but again, with the, the performances you see, I mean, driver, the way he views himself versus the way other people view him, you know, his character. Matt Damon gives one of the ugliest uh, performances. I think a movie star has given in a movie in the last like 10, 15 years, because like he signs up to be one of the most unlikable pricks ever. Well, and in the first story we hear, uh, the first perspective is from his. Right. And in that one, he's the most likable of the three because exactly. he's this, this man of honor. And even the way he's shot, I think, like he looks more handsome in that setting. Like, he's this heroic badass and the kind of classic, you know, like medieval hero. And with then, that fucking mullet, man. With a mullet and, like a, and a really jagged scar, which from one angle looks cool. And then as it goes on... He looks like a Megadeth Hesher, like hanging out <laughs> in a Seven Eleven parking lot. He, he's pretty freaky looking. Um, but I love the way the film kind of gets under the skin of the, of the narrative and, like, and the basic motivations of everybody. Like, you realize that Adam Driver is a... a piece of shit rapist, but spoiler, sorry. Well, um, <laughs> um, but with Matt Damon's character, his is a more kind of subtle dig where he, he's not evil, but he's a man in a, in a time period where, you know, women were, like, they were chattel, especially to him. And the way he treats her is like, he's more mad that another man slept with her than that she was raped because, because oh my God, the final beat of that, that retold scene from her perspective, right? When you actually find out how that, that really ends. It's, Oof. it's brutal. And then, I mean, it's all leading up to one of the, I think one of the best shot medieval battle, like uh one-on-one scenes yeah, I've ever the, seen. The actual titular duel is fucking awesome. It's because you, you said it's a two and a half hour movie and you get there you get your fucking money's worth. And it's not like the rest is not enjoyable. It's amazing. But like the payoff is there. It's like a, what? 10 minute scene. I think Yeah, it goes, it goes on for a long time in the final reel. Brutal. I Ooh, mean, it's great. And just gross and bloody. And, and we haven't even hit on like Jodie Comer is incredible. Oh, sorry. Yeah. As the, uh, let's say the unfortunate victim at yeah. the center of the movie. But I mean, the best performance comes from our beautiful boy, Ben, um, because Affleck, Obviously, when they were writing this script, saw this part and was like, I'm going to be that motherfucker because he plays. How do we describe him? Almost like a, a, a he's a lord, a lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, the local lord who's doing nothing but drinking, getting into orgies, has this crazy weird like the hairstyle choices in this fucking movie are so bonkers. He has this bleach blonde platinum almost like uh Peter O'Toole hair and this weird goatee. Yep. He's doing a real Peter Ustinov thing in this movie. Like that very, whole, very he's straight, but he's very fey. Yeah. Oh you know? my god. It, it's just an incredible, incredible performance. And just uh, w- one of many uh, in 
Affleck's year because I mean, like he had a huge 2021 if you think about it. Because you you get the Snyder cut, um, you get this movie which he's terrific in, and then Tender Bar came out already. Too. Tender Bar, which he's getting some awards buzz for. I've seen it, uh, not that Crit- critics great. aren't loving it. Right yeah. Now. But he's terrific in it. Like, he's the whole reason that you watch the movie. And he totally read that script and was like, yeah, I can do this. And I'll just fucking knock this shit out of the park. I mean, he's a Boston bar or he's a Long Island bartender. He's more or less playing Chucky from Goodwill Hunting. But like 20 years later, only Chucky in this version is from Long Island. He still works at a bar and is just like dispensing like, let's say, wisdom to his very ugly nephew. It's played by Ty Sheridan. But um, I went down a rabbit hole yesterday of I was looking at Ty Sheridan photos in order of his life, and you just see him get more unattractive. I'm sorry, real Ty, Jackie listening. Hurl it. Yeah, it, and it, we know you are. I, I feel just really bad because we'll get to one of the ones later. I don't want to, but like where he looks pretty horrible. And I don't think his acting is as good. I think he's like. He's not a good actor. He's not good. Like he was good as a, like he's good in Joe. He's good in Mud. Like when he's the kid. But he has the unfortunate byproduct of like Jackie or Haley uh, syndrome to where he got ugly, but you know, where Haley actually retained and, and improved upon his talent with stuff like little children, Ty Sheridan, mm, not so much. Ty, Ty Sheridan needs to find his doll man. He needs to be in a full moon. <laughs> <laughs> he needs to, he needs to be in a Tim Thomerson movie. That'll keep his career on track. Charles Band, <laughs> if you're <We're>, listening, <laughs> we we know you have the funds <laughs> and, the, I, I, and the skill. But I love Doll Man for the record. I love oh, sure, movie. it's great. <laughs> Please put Ty Sheridan in a demonic toys reboot. <laughs> anyway, let's get, damn it. Let's get to number ten. Um, my number ten, fuck, <laughs> is uh, zeros and ones. Abel Ferrara's. Uh, clandestine uh, COVID movie, let's say, that he produced kind of in secret in in Rome during the lockdown, um, mostly with uh, digital cameras, drones, um, and you really get the uh, feeling of apocalypse that Mm. I think has pervaded a a lot of our souls, let's say, since the pandemic has begun. But it's uh, a sort of impenetrable... Uh, more or less action movie narrative about uh, Ethan Hawke is a operative looking for his twin brother who may or may not be an anarchist terrorist who has helped bomb the Vatican. And it sort of plays like a companion piece to New Rose Hotel, uh, mm-hmm. his mid-90s movie that he made with Willem Dafoe and uh, Christopher Walken. It's a, it's a Gibson and, short story, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. A, a William Gibson adaptation. Aja Argento's in it, too. But it's all about information, transmissions, uh, picking up the bits and pieces left behind, and, and seeing how you can both commodify it and use it to push your central mission forward. Uh, but this movie, I was most impressed with it and honestly very moved by it because it feels... We, we, we've obviously talked a lot about COVID in the last two years, and we've talked about how it's impacted cinema, but I don't think any movie had really captured the vibe of mm. the pandemic quite like Ferrara's Zeros and Ones because it uh, really translates the notion of trying to prowl 
an apocalypse and find anything resembling hope to, mm. to kind of hold on to. And there's just beautiful, weird moments with people in masks, like cleansing themselves, taking them off and then like kissing and things like that. Mm. And just like it, just relatable things inside of this very strange, abstract pulp narrative that really resonated with me. And it's only 80 minutes long. So it's a real easy watch depending on your, uh, let's say, tolerance for extreme art house filmmaking yeah. because it's it's also a movie that you only get to make if you're Abel Ferrara on the fringes and people are just like oh shit yeah we'll toss you some money because there's even a weird uh, post credit scene one of the greatest if not the greatest post credit scene I've ever seen in my life with Ethan Hawke um, that ends like an extended gag uh, on the movie but that uh, I think the legend goes it's actually the video that Ethan Hawke shot when they ran out of money and needed more money from producers to finish the movie that Ethan Hawke was basically he shoots this like first person almost it looks like a almost like a TikTok video where he's like hey, you know I read the script I didn't really get it but like you know, I just wanted to work with Abel and you know, it was really tapping into something. It just felt like we could do something special and blah, blah, blah. But like he uses it in the film itself in a very unique, funny way that I loved. But yeah, that's my number 10 zeros and ones. It's, it's another late period work from a master filmmaker who just won't stop letting his freak flag fro like fly, man. So what's your number nine? Number nine is uh, Red Rocket. Oh, man. Um, and you showed that to me. You had seen it, and then we watched it on your birthday. Right. Um, and I, I really like Sean Baker. Um, I just sure. liked everything he's done. Obviously, not that many films, but um, I love what a, one critic called his ground level cinema. You know, of and I without it being poverty porn. Um, I, that I is the the only real criticism I've seen levied at this movie thus far, uh, because they've. They do accuse him somewhat of of doing poverty porn, which I don't agree with. I don't agree. I could I could see that angle if you're going to try and take it down. Let's say, yeah, I think yes. Well, if any, actually, yeah, I, he does show kind of a glorified view. I think. I, mean, I grew up in like rural Indiana, and there's parts of this movie that remind me of like where I grew up. Like I didn't grow up in this environment, but with with people like you see in the film, sure who have their own hopes and dreams and are just trying to get by. Um, but I think uh, just the, the main, the main performance, you know, is Simon Rex, Simon Rex, as Mikey Saber. He's it's, it feels like a new Hollywood film to me. It feels like that kind of the gray area of a male lead character who is on the one hand, the most charismatic, one of the most charismatic characters I've seen in a script in a long time. It feels like a role Jack Nicholson would have played in the seventies for like Bob, you know, Raffleson or I, something. I, yes, absolutely. I, I mean, five easy pieces is not a bad comparison right. of this guy who's like really charismatic, obviously using a woman, using women. I mean, like Jack often played that character, Karen Black in five easy pieces, right? You know, and with this one, you really, but it, you're like, you see why people are taken by him, and but also you see why some people are done with his bullshit. Um, and the, the other thing, obviously the lobby to this film is it's another f story about an underage girl, um, starts underage and then she turns 18 in the movie, I believe. I don't think she does turn 18. She's underage the she's, whole time. She's 17. Um, and it's a, he fucks her it, it, a, a lot. lot. It's, and that's, that is one criticism I also heard was that it's 
it's trying to be shown as an asshole, but it is this kind of like very titillating stuff because the girl's very attractive. She's in her mid twenties in, in real life. Um, it's one of the great modern examples uh, of uh, depiction versus endorsement yes, right now yeah, because yeah. it's 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 daring you to go along with this guy and try and figure out why he's so charismatic and magnetic and how he can con all these people. And while uh, the 2016 election is going or campaign, let's say is going on in the background. It reminds me a lot of um, Andrew Dominic's killing them softly. I was thinking the same thing. uh, Barack Obama's uh, speeches (laughs) and things are playing in the background and the subtext more or less becomes text because it's, you know, Red Rocket is very much, it's a Trump's America movie. It's about how could we fall in love with this charismatic, fast-talking huckster who sells us on a bunch of dreams that are probably all bullshit. And then here's, you, your, here's your main character. Yeah, and that's the guy. <laughs> but I mean, Killing Them Softly was doing the same thing. It's just set in this pulp, you know, New England underworld, if, if memory serves, and it's all about the economy. It's not really a movie about gangsters. It's about the economy. This is about Trump. You know, I thought I watched this in close succession with uh, Nightmare Alley, mm. which I think is another uh, oh, post-Trump yeah. movie because that movie's all it's unfortunately not on either of our lists, but we we liked it quite a bit. And it's another movie that we watched uh, together late at night on a screener. <laughs> um, well, you you called me and said it was like it was like ten fifteen. I'm getting ready to watch. My morality, and I go, oh fuck! You're like, well, I'll wait 15 minutes. <laughs> you want to get over? Yeah. I'm like, oh. bring pretzels. And it was, yeah, I did, I did, it was a work night too. I had to be up at eight, and I was like, fuck it, I'm there. You yeah. know, I would drop anything to see a new Del Toro. Yeah, so. and that movie is another to me another post Trump yes. uh, movie because it's all about the huckster, it's all about the con man, it's all about selling dreams and and magic to to in that movie primarily rich people yeah. uh, to swindle them out of their money, which is what Trump did. Um, but I mean. I agree with you. Uh, Red Rocket didn't quite make my list. It would probably hover around like number 11 or 12, but it might have the performance of the year, at least male performance of the year for me, because Rex is just absolutely terrific. No, it's going to go down in the, in the history books. I think for cinema, I I think it's that, it's that good. And again, I think it has that new Hollywood feel and also the way that, Sean Baker makes movies feels very new Hollywood to me. Well, too, it helps that it's know? shot on 16 millimeter yes. film. It like just it looks oh. tremendous with all of those crazy uh, Italian exploitation, like zooms and things that he's doing. Like it's just a, a stylistically really assured picture. Maybe his most assured thus far. I would say so. And then there's a couple shots shooting on 16 where he's also capturing all the lights of these, these, um, the oil, refineries the in the background. Refineries. And it makes just, such a great backdrop. Oh, well, he's he does it. He does it in Florida Project as well as the idea of what happens next to things. Like you have what's down the road from Disney World. You know, right. and it's it's a different. That's more like the, the land of dreams, fake land of dreams. But this one is more like this is what powers our country, and these are the people working and living around it. Yeah, and it kind of in squalor. You know, um, also continues his love of donut shops. Yes, because a donut shop plays a, a integral role in the movie's plot. So I'm going to move on to my number nine, which is Paul uh, Verhoeven's Benedetta, which you, another movie you have not seen yet. I, th- I was going to watch it yesterday because I, I guarantee it would probably be on my list because I love Verhoeven. So. And it's classic Verhoeven. 
Um, because to me, also apocalyptic, right? I've heard mm, moments of, by the end it goes completely bonkers and it is, yeah, it is apocalyptic because it all takes place during, uh, the plague in France. Yeah. Um, that it does play a major kind of narrative role in the movie, but it's very much about, you know, everybody's described it as the lesbian nun film, which it is, but it's also kind of like his take on. Ken Russell's the demons or the devils. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, and that kind of medieval genre. But to me, it, it felt almost most like a big budget Jess Franco movie. Yeah. It's, it's very much doing titillation for the, the sake of titillation, uh, possession, religious, uh, hypocrisy, uh, and, and female competition, which is something that Verhoeven has been obsessed with, like his entire career dating all the way back to, you know, uh, Katie Tipple and, and the movies that he was making, uh, in his, his home country, uh, before he came over to America. But, uh, this is a French film, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, the same with L, which was another movie that Ooh. I was completely blown away by. But here's another guy who's like, you know, in his eighties, and is just fucking firing off, you know, subversive weirdo works of art that just are, are total entertainments while also like keep with his kind of auteurist mentality. And frankly, he's still possibly cinema's finest pervert like ever because there's a, a lesbian sex scene that goes on forever in this movie. And Longer it's, than Handmaiden? It's... I didn't see it. Oh, mm, that's a pretty long one. It's pretty close. You're talking about the Chanwu Park movie, right? Yeah. yeah, pretty close. Possibly more graphic. Whoa, um, okay. I mean, this movie, I'm not going to spoil for the audience. There's a central prop in this movie that a huge part of the narrative revolves around and hinges upon. And you, when you actually see it, you won't be able to fucking believe that he put it in a film, let alone got it released by IFC Films. Oh, I'm like, sorry. It's a tremendous work of subverse, uh, subversive art. Totally love Paul Verhoeven. If we can build some kind of fucking machine to keep him making movies forever, we really should because I love, 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 love Benedetta. And he obviously has not missed a fucking beat. I think January is going to be my catch-up month. I'm just a lot of this shit. Yeah. So, um, you're number seven. Yes. Number eight. Oh, I'm sorry. Number eight. My number eight is the rescue, the documentary. Quite good. You recommended it to me. Right. Um, and I didn't see it till it came on Disney plus, um, because it, it's national geographic is, is on Disney plus. And you, you had told me like, this is the, the Tony Scott documentary. It almost feels like a, he made it. Um, and, but it, for those of you who haven't seen it, tells the story of um, a soccer team in Thailand of, of young boys and their coach who were exploring a, a cave system, which was often often explored by all kinds of people. There was a huge flood and it filled the cave and basically they were stuck on this little ledge back in like very, very far back in this cave system. Miles. Miles back. Um, and like these filmmakers, I actually had never seen Free Solo. And they said, I went and watched Free Solo after, which I also thought was fantastic. Um, and I like this one more than Free Solo, but Free Solo is really good. I, I think the story is more exciting in, yeah, gen this in is general. way more propulsive. And, and Free Solo is more of like a biography, a feel of a guy. Sure. With the amazing end results. You know, that last scene of him climbing is 
crazy. But does also share some similarities with uh, Free Solo in that the central protagonists in yep. the rescue are just as prickly, let's say, as the guy who as the mountain climber in Free Solo, and it's like you can kind of see both why the, the documentarians wanted to make this story into a, a narrative, but also like once they probably met their subjects, they're like, Oh shit, we really struck gold. Cause these guys are, are real weird. Yeah. Well, that's, it's really, I agree. That, that's the heartwarming. That's the, that's the main connection where you have these very lonely kind of men. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a Almost very, it's on the spectrum. Very much so where you, it's um, cave diving is a, is a very niche uh, hobby and it's expensive and it's dangerous. And so, and isolated and I, and isolated, even with your other person, like you're not talking, like you're just kind of in this, you know, the system and you're a lot of the guys would say it's very quiet down there. You kind of forget all your problems up above, but they talk about them the same way that people talk about like doing uh, sensory deprivation tanks. Yes. Yeah. Cause you're, you're just cut off from the world, but it's told in this very propulsive manner of, of all these steps that had to happen and these crazy things they did to save these kids and not one of the kids or the coach died. One, one diver did. Um, and it's mind blowing. Yeah. Also has one of my favorite characters of the year in the anesthesiologist the, who yeah. is straight up the entire time. Cause these guys are all from New Zealand. Correct. Bri they're British. They're the British. Okay. Yeah. But he is a British anesthesiologist and straight up on camera goes, I don't want to do this because because they more or less minor spoilers while they're transporting these kids underwater they have to drug them to Be to put them under so they don't fight the divers as they carry them out of this miles long cave system and this anesthesiologist is more or less like look these motherfuckers are probably going to die but I didn't know what else to do and I didn't want to say no and it sounded like, kind of like a cool trip so I went like he's Fucking hilarious! The well, entire his movie. dad died the like the day they oh, got yeah. the last kid out. His dad passed away. The, it's crazy how like there's some coincidence. Reality shit. played. I hate to put it this way because it is very tragic that his dad dies, and I don't want to sound insensitive. But reality almost played into the narrative and made it more exciting and moving and and frankly dramatic because you're just like like you couldn't you can't believe how many layers is is kind of put upon one another uh, in the actual character building just through sheer like living and, and life experience. And man, it's a really tremendous film. I'm, I'm glad that you checked it out because I liked it a lot too. Uh, one thing I wanted to add to uh, before we move on is you and I were texting when I was watching it, you'd already seen it, was how the hell did they shoot this? And a lot of it is recreation. Right. So they actually built sets in, I think it was Pinewood or something, to match. Because I was wondering the whole time while watching it, and I was like, what the... F There's no way they have all of this footage. And and that, so they had a lot of footage, and then they did, but they had to do a lot more... Because they do of, computer graphics stuff, too, where like... To connect it all. Where, they, where they, they map out the cave system to really give you a, a detailed kind of sense of like, oh shit, this is really that big this is hard you know? it's gonna be a difficult task but they they were interviewing the directors about how they shot it and they said this is gonna go one or two ways this is gonna look like complete shit where you're gonna tell that's real footage this is this is fake footage 
And it, you barely, the fact that we're having this conversation means it's so seamlessly cut together because they got the real people to come back, like the, the main cave divers. It's like, it's not someone playing them, it's them. They came back to redo what they had done yeah. in, in a studio. It's fucking crazy. It's really, really great. It's on, I believe, the documentary shortlist. It's probably going to get nominated yeah, this year for good reason. I mean, it's a, it's a really tremendous movie. That's National Geographic Films, yeah. and it's going to be, I believe... Because Disney owns it, I believe it's going to be on Disney Plus. That, that's where I, that's where I saw it. Oh, is that where you actually it's been on saw there it? for like a month? I saw it on a screener, so yeah. like uh, I didn't know where it actually landed, but like yeah, and it's I on their main it banner. It's like it's it's advertised all over, like before Boba Fett. Well, I know they're really <laughs> pushing it to to be like a documentary uh, contender. Let's yes, say yes. All right, so my number eight is the Matrix Resurrections. Hell yeah, which is the only blockbuster on my list. I think it's the only blockbuster on. Both of our lists, technically, mm. there's one bigger movie that you have. Uh, oh no, you do have one blockbuster on yours. Yeah. But th- this is the only real big movie that I have from the year because, frankly, it's the only big IP film that truly uh, floored me. I like Dune. I really like Dune. Don't get me wrong. Um, I think it's a, a, a massive achievement in, in translation, uh, adaptation, set design like every technical achievement all it's perfectly cast great movie i just didn't love it the way everybody else did what are you gonna do yeah i'm gonna watch it again probably three more times and then watch it back to back when part two comes out i just wasn't as enraptured with it the same way that i was with like blade runner 2049 or sakari which which i do prefer yeah like it just but we'll get to that you know it didn't do it for for me uh, the same way, but it's still a great movie. The Matrix Resurrections did do it for me because it's one of the most subversive blockbusters I think I've ever seen in terms of taking a franchise and using it to become almost self-reflexive to where it comments on not only itself, but its place in our current kind of IP-driven culture and it comments on the audience that would, frankly, demand and dissect a fourth Matrix movie, what, 20 years it's after? Been, it's been 18. Is it 18 years after the last one came 18 out? 18 since 2000. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, and I mean, it's the, the instant comparison that I made on Twitter and the studio, uh, unfortunately asked me to take it down, uh, because I didn't really, I mean, I fucked up. I, I didn't realize there was a social embargo and oh, tweeted. So you could do I it now, it. but you could, but I got, yeah. I got uh, my hand slapped a little bit. Um, but it is a new nightmare. It's yeah. the new nightmare of the matrix movies while still also in the same way that new night, new nightmare is a great Wes Craven film, but nightmare does the same thing to where it, it's commenting on, uh, Wes Craven's career, it's commenting on horror, it's commenting on um, where they were at the time and IP and, and the genre and everything. Matrix Resurrections is doing the same thing where it's it's Lena Wachowski commenting on this franchise and what it means to her and her sibling and like how it helped them, uh, let's frankly, you know, find their place both in the world and in their identity um, and really uh, come out and everything. And and also just like what a landmark it was when it came out in 99 while still being a fucking awesome Wachowski movie. Like, dude, 
I love this film. I've heard people complain that there's not enough action or that the action's not that great. Now, look, I will say, after going back and, and re-watching the first Matrix, I do agree with the criticisms that the digital versus film look is noticeable and not as elegant and, and beautifully composed. It also hurts that you don't have uh, Yin Wu Ping doing the, the wire choreography yeah. for it. But dude, Resurrection still has that fucking train sequence. And to me, the one I've, I've been lovingly uh, referring to as the 9-11 bomber sequence. Oh, dude. Where they, they create the drones who, who jump out of windows and try to take them out during that motorcycle chase. And smash into digital bits. But like... like- the, oh my god, so cool! Fucking awesome, dude! And like, even that opening sequence where it's beat for beat, like replicating the opening of the Matrix. Which uh, we should also comment on the fact that this takes the screenplay of the Matrix and replicates it beat for beat. Only you're watching it from another person's perspective and even participating in it in, in uh, certain ways, which I found fucking ingenious. Um, but man, that first action sequence with um, uh, the new character. Uh, Bugs. Bugs, She's man, so cool. Where she flips over the fucking car and is shooting backwards and shit. Like, that's awesome. Um, but also, like, dude, I, the, the one criticism I've heard that I, I just flat out can't get behind is they're like, do, do we really care about Neo and Trinity being in love? And I was like, yes, I care. You know why I fucking care? Because it's the auteurist stamp of the Wachowskis. They oh, they're romantics are, through and they're through. They're romantics. Like, the best part of uh, V for Vendetta, which they didn't direct, but they obviously produced. And, and they wrote it. They wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> but also, they um, supposedly ghost-directed certain parts of yeah. it and reshoots and stuff. But that whole sequence in the jail cell where, you you know, you find out about the lesbian lovers in a, in, in a time of... Uh, of oppression is just so lovely. All the cloud Atlas oh stuff my is, God. is just driven so by the swooning yeah. romanticism. I mean, even the original matrix movies by the end is fueled by Trinity and Neo's love for one another. But like, maybe it's just getting older or whatever, but those scenes between Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss are just, I love them. The whole, like it reminded me also of Tony Scott's deja vu, which is another film that we really, really, really like. Yes. Um, but it's just, I, I don't know. Like the first time I liked it, but then I rewatched it again with Carrie and like was crying during certain scenes because I was just so caught up in it. It's almost like I, it's the same way that I love like Douglas Sirk stuff. Is that oh, yeah. It just totally hits you right in the, the heart. Isn't afraid to be romantic. Isn't afraid to be the swooning melodramatic thing. And I just, I, I can't, I can't recommend Resurrections enough. If you're not into it, cool. But don't talk to me. Yeah, I my brother and I watched it the day the day after it was on HBO Max. Um and we were he has a big screening room um at his house in Georgia. And we Matrix is a connected movie for us. Like I sure. saw I saw it with my dad opening weekend on a Saturday morning at Lowe's Theater in Greenwood, Indiana. I saw it with my brother in the same way at a, at a matinee on opening weekend because we both looked at each other and we're like this looks super cool but i bet you it's in theaters for like two weeks it's gonna bomb it looks cool but everyone was also making fun of it for they said oh is this giant mnemonic 2 remember that right everybody was like, nobody oh. believed in keanu yeah they're like oh giant mnemonic 2 fuck that I actually Y'all love stupid giant now and so calm down 
my my brother he came into town a couple weeks later. I said, "Have you seen?" Him? He goes, "No." We went together, and like I watched him, like his mind was just blown. My dad's a fucking religion professor and philosophy professor. We saw it together, and he's like, "Oh!" And he used to do martial arts, so he was in heaven. He's like, "This is like one of the greatest films I've ever seen." And um, watching the fourth with my brother from the first scene, we were just in, like completely pl- you know, plugged into the movie. I was loving it. Even I agree. Like some of the action is subpar compared to the original. It's a little choppy. It's choppy. And it's like kind of an afterthought. It feels like honestly for, for Lana, they care um, much more about the meta aspects and, and the romance. Yes, totally. And, but the scene that really got to me, um, and I could see like what Lana's kind of like working with and, and, and what the, like you're saying, what the film means to her and what the, what the, the franchise means to her. Handsome Chad. <laughs> Handsome Chad is kind of you reach a moment in your life where kind of that midlife crisis or that or even like you know your late 30s which I am where you're kind of like what's it all fucking mean right and there's a moment where I think it's it's again it's so on the nose but it works perfectly because it's 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 melodrama where he says to so Trinity goes I think at a certain point I just stop looking for something real yeah, and I just I got cried I got I teared up immediately and because I, I, I connect with that you know and I was like I feel that where it can apply to all aspects of your life where that you kind of just like get into a groove. Like, I guess this is it, you know, that that this is reality. This is all my life is going to be. And I think the film talks about all of that. I think it's a beyond trans. I I love the way you can read as a trans narrative now as well. So many different people can take their story, but you can also read that as, uh, Lana Wachowski commenting on her own career. Yeah, being totally. Like, am I only the Matrix? Yes. Like, is this, is this all it? that people look when they look at me? Is that all they see? You know. You you made a point too that I I liked where you said like you know this is the same exact beat for beat as the original Matrix, right? Which is exactly what they did with Force Awakens, and with, I mean you walked it's the exact same story. Like every beat, every every act turn is the same. Yeah. And Only you have actual like good filmmakers doing this one. Exactly. And it's and it's also Lana commenting on the practice of doing a legacy sequel, you know, of of saying, give the people what they want, which is the whole thing. Cause you think about the failure that moment with fucking uh Jonathan Groff, like yes. oh, 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 like opening uh when he meets Keanu, calls him into big because in the movie Keanu's playing Thomas Anderson. Thomas Anderson's a video game designer. He designed the Matrix. Designed the Matrix trilogy of video games. And Groff is more or less his like corporate overlord at the game company they works at. And he's like, look, I know you don't want to do this, but our parent company, Warner, Warner Brothers, Brothers <laughs> is gonna do it with or without us. Which so you true. might as well participate. It just they're not ashamed of being like, okay, cool. Well, this is what the movie's about. It's about us making a Matrix movie. It's, I thought, I, I just thought it came together so well. And I think beyond, you know, what's cool, I think the comparison to uh, New Nightmare is apt because New Nightmare is meta as fuck, but it doesn't forget that it's a horror movie, right? And that sure. there's a bad guy and there's a good guy and that Freddy's dangerous in the real world, right? And this is very similar. It's like, it's meta as hell and it, it's continuously meta the entire time, but also it gives you the sugar too. I mean, like going to IO, going to the new version of, um, of Zion, seeing Niobe as the, as this general now, now Niobe is what Leia should have been. I'm going to be in- real. The, the, the new human city 
is the only part. Like I thought it was cool, but it was the only part where I was sitting there going, "All right, let's let's hurry up and get back to Trinity and Neo." You no, know? Yeah, I get it. I, I I liked it, and I liked all the additions too. Of like, um, like the new characters were whatever, but I think they were kind of purposely that way. Um, but I think like the way that they've now made friends. Um, How did you feel about New Morpheus? I loved it. I, yeah. I, I thought it, I thought it was cool. He's having a lot of fun because that's Yahya Abdul Mahin. Yeah. yeah, and he I mean, he's, his last three years, that guy, he's Candyman like, too, Candyman, and then you know Watchmen, where he plays Doctor Manhattan. Oh shit, I forgot. Yeah, um, Aquaman. He's back for Aquaman too. Is Black Manta? Oh wow! Like he's working with Warner Brothers a lot. Um, but I think what's really cool, there's I because th- one of the things I read about too, we could do obviously I don't do a whole Matrix episode here, but. Um, one of the biggest problems that Lana and Lily have had with the discourse around the matrix from before was the way that the, the rop, the right has co-opted the red pill. Right. And it's this whole thing. They where wanted it's like, to reclaim it. And so the idea, like, you know, someone like Ben Shapiro can say, take the red pill and see behind the curtain of what the liberals are doing. It's complete bullshit. And, and she has come out numerous times and said, fuck you, Tucker Carlson. Stop saying this. Like, <laughs> like she's literally said that. And we, well, we, there's that infamous tweet now where she logged on and basically told uh, Ivana, is it I, Ivana Trump to go fuck themselves? Yes, yeah, she did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck, yeah, fuck off or something. And um, but what's really cool the way that I think they reclaim that she reclaims um, the red pill idea was it's not us versus them anymore because. They talk. Uh, Niobe says we were in a matrix of our own making, where we hated the robots completely, and you can't live in this antagonistic world. There are now good robots who are working with the humans and making things they never could have made on their own. Again, on the nose, but it really fucking works to say you don't get to make this a red pill versus blue pill thing anymore. You know, it's not one of two choices. The world is much more complex, right? And being together is where you know where it's at. So. Which again could also be a comment on being trans. Yeah, yeah. There's no binary anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. You know. So you're number seven, Martin. Yeah, um, I'm gonna go with Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. <laughs> what a movie! It's it's delightful. Um, I had had a few friends tell me I think you might like this. This was one of the films that did do a day and date release, not through HBO, but I think through. Amazon Prime immediately put it out. It was like one of, like well, $20 it was one of the ones that was delayed because I remember seeing trailers for it in theaters before COVID locked everything down for like, honestly, I might've seen a trailer for it before like bloodshot and shit. Yeah. It was like 2019. I yeah. Think. Because yeah. it was going to be a movie that came out and was going to be like a big release. And then it was pushed to Amazon. Yeah. I mean, there, it, there, it did play in some theaters. I think there was, some it theatrical, did. Yeah. But um, well, I own it on Blu-ray, so it's, it's so it. I compared it to the feeling of seeing like Bill and Ted for the first time, where it's these like lovable idiots. It's who, really funny who get involved in a somewhat over the top, not supernatural, but like a ridiculously pulpy mystery with like comic booky villains and and things like. It's that. It's like if Bill and Ted went to Club Dread, very much Club Dread. Um, but it, it also is just like it's so. Um, good natured, good natured, and innocent. You know, there's it's, not a mean bone in its body. It, it's yeah, it's one of those movies that we talked about with um, like Hal Needham of like you always make friends with the villain at the end. It has yeah. like that feel of like there's no real bad person. Like we're all here having a good time. And we'll work it out. 
Great musical numbers, too. And also, like... The Seagull song is wonderful. Oh, my God. And Jamie Dornan, you know, what a year. That guy's going to be up for Academy Awards for Belfast. He should be up for Academy Awards for Barb and Star. Well, I win as him for Halloween this year. Um, my friend, when he win, climbs yeah. that fucking tree. Oh. <laughs> it's just a... It's a it's, I think it was also the kind of movie that sounds cheesy, but, like, we kind of need sometimes where everything is just so heavy. Sure. And it's just, again, like you said, so like just kind hearted and sweet, but also like has a lot of great like potty humor and it. it balances it well. Like there's this whole thing that she talks about when she travels that her insides feel like rolled up tube socks. And it's like the funniest fucking thing. Like her just talking about being constipated and the Your sex, dick the sex touched scene. my heart. Oh. It went so deep that it touched my heart. It's just the best, like that that Kristen Wig kind of hesitant. Well, I think this, but they're the kind of Midwestern, and with her her writing partner who I'd never seen in anything else, Annie Annie Momolo. Yeah, yeah, and she's she's amazing too. Like she she holds her own next to to Kristen Wig and the whole cast. Kristen also plays the villain. Um, it's just it's just a very I've watched like three times during COVID. Just like it's you spend you're basically spending the a couple hours with these people at a really like kind of Jimmy Buffett style beach resort. Um, Tremendous movie to smoke weed to. I have not done that, but I, I will. I have. <laughs> it's great. Let me tell you. What's your number seven? Pig uh, with Nicolas Cage. Um, saw this really early <clears throat> and was just totally taken by it. It's a uh, debut movie from um, Michael Sarnowski, who I was completely unaware of before this movie came out. And it follows uh, Nick Cage as a chef who lives a monastic life in the wilderness with his favorite truffle pig. And that's what he does. One day the truffle pig is pignapped. And, you know, we follow Nick Cage as he re-enters society uh, to try and track it down. And I think when I remember hearing uh, that Neon had bought this movie, I believe out of Cannes uh, about a year or so ago, that the log line made me think, oh, cool, this is Nick Cage's John Wick with a pig. You know? Yeah. It's not that. It is a deeply affecting movie about loss and grief and how incidents in our life can totally change who we are almost on like a molecular level, but beyond anything else, man, it's one of the great monuments to how Nick Cage is possibly our greatest living actor. Yeah. Like he gives a performance that's so not to sound pretentious, but like soulful and, and moving and, and totally love it. There's everybody's going to point to there already. We, we know he's going to possibly be in the Oscar conversation for this movie. And everybody's already kind of pointing to, there's a big scene in a restaurant where you, you finally kind of realize who, like somebody recognizes him and we find out more or less who this guy is and where his place in this world was before he moved into the wilderness. And that's the one a lot of people are going to point towards, but there's a emotional crescendo towards the end where he and Adam Arkin uh, get into a verbal sparring match and you, you more or less find out like what 
happened? Like, what was the main inciting incident that, that sent him into the wilderness on this new path that when it happened was so like emotionally devastating that I had to stop the movie and leave the room mm. because beyond Nick Cage, Adam Arkin fucking brings it in one, like, you know, on the, the, the rewatchables, they talk about like the Dion waiters award and stuff of guys who just come off the bench and with like a few scenes, just steal the whole movie. Dude, Adam Arkin in this like thunders into this movie and just owns it. And you're like, Oh shit, that's right. Adam Arkin. I like H2O, I guess. <laughs> He's great in that movie, <laughs> but it, it's just a really tremendous small movie, possibly the best debut I've seen in a while, at, at least in the last like couple years, and I, I can't recommend it enough. It's it's on VOD now and, and streaming, and I believe that you can get it even on Blu-ray. Mm. Um, and I, I have been meaning to watch it with you as another movie that was in the mix uh, for my birthday movie oh. marathon that almost made it in, but I just... I edged it out for something else because too many people who are attending it already seen it. So, but we'll watch it together because I, I'm ready to revisit it because it's been about six months since I've seen it last. I'm in. Yeah. So, what is your uh, number six? It is Stillwater. Ooh, another Matt Damon. Joint. Damon's rocking it twice. Now you have not seen this. I had not. This is Tom McCarthy. It's Tom McCarthy. Um, so I actually watched. Who I it. like a lot. I love McCarthy. The, the Cobbler's the only one I don't like by him. Um, and that's a rough one. I think one. that's his masterpiece. <laughs> Get out of here. Um, but I've I've loved his film since uh, Station Agent. My brother loves that movie. It's The Visitor. Um, and, and Spotlight. Spotlight. Win, win Win is amazing. Like, oh, yeah, the wrestling movie. That G movie's really good. Really good. Giamatti, like a great not. Giamatti's great in the non-actor kid who plays the, the wrestler. Uh, I forget his name. But... I had put off Stillwater because it did look a little bit just, again, on the nose. And I was on a plane, and I said, I'm just going to give it – I'll give it 10 minutes, you know? And and I like McCarthy, so I'm like, it's going to be quality. Let's just see if this kind of story I want to go into. And the basic plot is um, Matt Damon is, is an American. Um, definitely – they make many comments of like, he's basically from Trump's America. Um, and his, uh, his daughter, uh, Abigail Breslin, um, is already in jail for murder in France. Um, well, she's, I mean, this is the controversy around this movie is that they more or less co-opted the Amanda Knox story without her consent. I know that she's kind of pissed about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a very, um, but that, that aside, fictional um, retelling, fictional retelling. Um, but he, another really interesting role for Damon this year, um, where it thematically McCarthy tasted this place where there's kind of an evil inside us as Americans that we bring around the world. Um, and like the ugly American, the thing? ugly American thing. Um, and it kind of, there's that whole quote from, from Burroughs where it's like, there's an evil here since before the Native Americans, it's like it's in our soil. Um, and it gets in this kind of idea of it's his family. There's like a sickness in them. Like he does, he's done horrible things in the past and his daughter's maybe done a horrible thing. They get in, they get in trouble very easily. And, but it, he kind of finds comfort in this found family, which is a very Tom McCarthy thing. It's not all, most of his yeah. films have that. Um, and, it's it, it's he becomes very close with um, 
a French woman who's a, a theater uh, theater actress, like kind of uh, kind of an um, avant garde theater actress, and her daughter. And it starts out by he can't speak any French, and he needs her help, um, kind of translating as he's getting more information on his daughter. And of course, it becomes a friendship, and then more romantic as well. But it's structured very classic cinema. I mean, like the beats are very clear. It's not a very surprising movie, sure, um, but. I was just watching the planet. There's just a really solid melodrama um, with great performances. Abigail Breslin is just great in it. Like she brings like a, a real sense of reality. I didn't even realize she was in it. Yeah, she's awesome. Um, and Damon just like he plays this like really close-lipped American. Like he's like a I think he used to work on an oil rig, you know. And he just that's he, what he looks he like in the trailers. Yeah, very very close-lipped. Like just like doesn't let any clenched jaw out. masculinity. But it it's it was it was one of my favorites. It just I, I find it very affecting, and you know sometimes a story that's kind of been told before works. You know, um, I've been meaning to check it out because I've heard it's really good. You know, but it just hasn't been worked in yet. But it gives me something to watch in the future. Indeed. How about you? Well, number six for me is uh, the last duel, which we've already done. So number five, we're going to jump ahead to is Spencer. The Pablo Lorraine uh, Princess Diana movie where Kristen Stewart is Princess Diana um, trapped more or less in a holiday uh, right around the time that, uh, you know, uh, Prince Charles is beginning his affair with Camilla, Mm -hmm. I believe, and she knows about it. The tabloids are, are swarming, let's say. Um, the royal family hates her for all the attention that she's bringing to, to the crown uh, through like the star, or the sun and stuff. But it's like Jackie, more horror adjacent than anything else. Only what I liked about it, uh, beyond Stewart's performance, which is absolutely out of its mind great. Uh, she, I believe, is the front runner right now for best actress for a good reason. Like, because she's, this is one of those things because Diana is such a uh, massive uh, cultural icon. Like, you could easily slip into like uh, impersonation, impersonation yeah. with her. And she doesn't. She creates a Kristen Stewart uh, caricature that is huffy and exasperated and brings all of her like that just pent up sexual anxiety that, that almost every Stuart performance kind of contains. Um, but is dressed up in this kind of like high camp, uh, outfits and everything, because it really, I mean, Lorraine really runs the gamut of like putting her in every ridiculous uh, bit of couture that he can, uh, it hits on her bulimia a little bit, but again, in like a very surreal, weird, like horror movie sense, because w- what it does that Jackie doesn't, that did do that I didn't like is, did you see Jackie? I did not. Okay. So Jackie is all about Jackie Onassis. It's Natalie yeah. Portman, where she, belie- I believe, was nominated for the movie. Um, you know, and it talks about her uh, trying to cope with the aftermath of JFK being assassinated. And, and carrying on Camelot and the whole idea of Camelot and ashes and blah, blah, blah. But there's a framing device in Jackie where she's being interviewed by a reporter played by uh, Billy Crudup that is, to me, while well-written, the worst part of the movie because those scenes almost seem to exist 
to explain the movie to the viewer and like kind of uh, orient you to the, the chronology of her life. Spencer does none of that. Spencer just throws you into uh, the Royals uh, mansion that they go to during the Christmas holiday and just closes the walls on Diana little by little to where she's having like panic attacks and like hallucinations where she starts eating pearls. She starts conversing with the ghost of Anne Boleyn, which admittedly is a little on the nose, but um, it's really, really tremendous. Uh, especially when we get to the end because the end becomes this huge uh, kind of cathartic beat. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it, but there's a scene on a beach between her and Sally Hawkins because Sally Hawkins plays one of the girls who's more or less like a maid or, or handmaiden to, to Princess Diana while she's in these chambers, presents her with her dresses and everything every day and gets her ready. And it's just becomes also like an emotional confidant mm -hmm. uh, through that. But there's a scene between them at the end that's like kind of reveals what the whole movie is about. And it's just one of those heart explodingly emotional uh, moments that I just, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I've watched it three times now. I cry every time in the last 20 minutes, the last 20 minutes are some of the best filmmaking that you'll see all, not only all year, but maybe in Lorraine's whole career. Like it's really tremendous. Also uh, has a great Mike and the Mechanics needle drop, uh, which was one of my dad's favorite bands growing up. Weirdly enough, uh, he always played this song on a tape over and over again. Uh, so uh, really can't recommend it enough. Lorraine Spencer. What was your number five? Number five for me was Licorice Pizza, which is my number three. Um, and we spoke before we are soon doing a, um, Paul Thomas Anderson episode. So we're going to basically, I'm going to, we can speak briefly here. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure we'll go in depth with that one. Yeah. I, I, I love the freewheeling nature of it. I love the kind of the American graffiti feel of this time and place and being a teen and falling in love. It's very romantic. Um, it's just moves in a really nice way. Uh, like all his, all his stuff, very propulsive kind of narrative when it doesn't feel like it. Um, but I just, I really got wrapped up um, in, in like their love stories. Very strange, <laughs> strange is, kids. Uh, Cooper Hoffman and Alana Haim. Yep. And Alana Haim is like, Ooh, I, I developed the biggest crush over two hours that, that I can't even express right now. It really, she works so well because and I was reading a review about it is like, she's not conventionally pretty, um, but it's this thing, this energy. She, she's very gorgeous, but she brings this energy to her looks. Um, like uh, one of the critics I read said that a lot of times she looks in the mirror kind of like, what are people seeing in me? Like, well, I, I don't see myself as attractive maybe as they do. Um, but it, uh, she just this like holds the entire film together really powerful, like magnetic force. And of course, I mean, Cooper Hoffman too, is his first role period, you know? Um, and as this kind of hustler, there's uh, to your point, I don't want to get too deep right. into it before the PTA episode, but there's a home movies quality to it. Yeah. That I love, uh, that, that Anderson injects because, you know, he had worked with, uh, Heim is it time, right? Or is it's, it Haim? It, it's Haim, I think. Haim. 
he had worked by with them and, and was good friends uh, with the the sisters and directed a bunch of their videos. But also, Eight of them. like, yeah, <laughs> and also like Cooper Hoffman, like, obviously is Philip Seymour Hoffman's kid. And Anderson, even in interviews thus far, has said like he's been in a bunch of like my because he has four kids with Maya Rudolph. He's been in a bunch of shorts with. Uh, his kids that they shoot on like super eight millimeter in the back, like their backyard and shit. And like, there's already, as we were discussing more and more uh, as awards kind of come up on Twitter, people have already shown screen caps of when the master was at the Academy Awards. Cooper Hoffman's literally sitting there with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of weirdly emotional, but it's to me, one of the things that I love about the movie is the same reason that I really like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It it treads a lot of the same ground in that it feels like a sense memory a lot of the time of like yeah. this guy trying to remember what it was like to grow up in the San Fernando Valley in the 70s, what those kids would have felt like, what the threads would have felt like on your, your, on your skin, what music they would have been listening to, what kind of weird washed up actors, because I love Sean Penn's uh, oh. William Holden stand-in, oh, so would have been hanging out in those bars. Tom Waits shows up more or less almost doing like... Oh, Fuller. Yeah, he's, he's totally doing Sam Fuller the whole time like I don't know it, it it also feels like that and also like a guy remembering the movies that inspired these because I love that the movie turns into Taxi Driver for 10 minutes yep like that whole setup of, of Benny Safdie's uh, political office totally feels like the uh, campaign that Albert Brooks and Sybil Shepard are working in in Taxi Driver also steals a little bit of that assassin vibe from Nashville which is his favorite movie of all time I believe um, I did not know that, but it makes sense. Yeah. That's my favorite Altman. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's just, I, I agree with you. I, I love it. I fell into it. It's my number three. And, uh, I, I, I agree with you 100%. Like I'm glad that this work of pedophilia exists. Yes. <laughs> you want to go to your number four? I'm going to skip my number four because it's actually your number one. Okay. I'm going to go to number two. Uh, actually, because my number three is Licorice Pizza. My number two is The Worst Person in the World, uh, Joachim Trier's uh, latest movie uh, exploring Oslo and uh, the the young people who live inside of it. And man, what a uh, film this really is. Uh, you unfortunately missed it on my birthday. Yeah. You were working while we showed it. It was the first in like a six-movie marathon that we did that day. Um, but, you know... <laughs> Back when Boyhood uh, came out, there were a lot of the decriers of that movie were like, well, what about girlhood? Where's our girlhood? And you're like, this is that movie, only this is womanhood because it follows a uh, woman as she kind of enters her 30s and navigates all the questions that we were kind of talking about with resurrections. Like, what do I do? What's the career that I do? Is this the, the, the... relationship that I'm in worthy of this time that I'm putting into it. Do I have a future? Uh, you know, what's going to happen next to me? And it's all driven by this incredible performance by, and I'll have to apologize because I'm going to totally butcher her name. It's a uh, Renette Ren- Renziv. Um, but she plays Julie and we watch her life in 12 chapters plus a prologue and epilogue. And it just moves you through how this woman 
figures out who she is and what the rest of her life is going to look like. Cannot recommend it enough because both her performance is possibly the performance of 2021 for me. Just a total knockout came from nowhere. Never heard of you before. And I'm now totally in love with you. Um, she looks more or less uh, like European Dakota Johnson, um, which, you know, tickles a few things on me, let's say. But uh, the filmmaking that Trier puts in, I've always liked him, especially like we were talking before we started recording with Thelma. I, I like that movie quite a bit. Um, but I didn't think that he had a movie this fucking good in him because some of the formal uh, kind of tricks and, and ticks that he indulges are just mind blowing. There's a moment in this where like, it was one of those, like your breath kind of stops in your throat uh, instances while you're watching something, because there's a moment where she's in the middle of a relationship and she hits a light switch and time stops in the entire world. And you watch as she imagines what she wants to do in that very moment and runs across town to do it. And it's one of the most swooningly beautiful and romantic things I've ever seen. But that also feels like it came out of a weird David Fincher thriller. It's in fucking incredible. I can't recommend this movie enough. Nice. So let's move on to your, since we're jumping around here, number four. Yeah. So, um, I'm going to say uh, we're all going to the World's Fair, which I'm curious about because it played at Sundance. Yeah, it's played almost at a, a year ago. You online. Yeah, because that's when you saw it originally. Right. Yeah, was the, when we did digital Sundance. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think it has. It does have distribution because I think it's coming home through HBO Max eventually. But it, it hasn't yet. So but we're still counting it. As 2021, yeah, just because you saw it, yeah, and it's saying 2021 on IMDb, yeah, no release information yet. Um, it was bought though, like HBO Max bought it, yeah, yeah. Um, so but why do you love it? This was a film that seeing it at Sundance, it was one of the most talked about at the fest. I mean, people were tweeting a lot yeah. about it, um, and and I watched it by myself. I think you, you didn't get a chance to watch it. Um, I have not directed by, uh, Jane Schauenbronn. Um, I probably butchered that as well, uh, about a young girl who gets kind of trapped in a online creepypasta forum, uh, figuratively speaking. And it's these kind of dares you do and not even in a physical horrific way. And it's, I wouldn't even call it a horror film, but it very easily just dances kind of like toes that line, um, between is this real? Is this not? Um, and she, the main girl has a, uh, builds a relationship with another member of the online forum, um, who you find out is an older man and she's supposed to be like 16. Um, and it's one of those stories of, is he using her? Is she using him? It's this kind of back and forth and how real is the world's fair? Um, it's a, just a really unsettling film. Um, but it also is one of the best depictions I've seen of just online online environments um, and how okay. people and how people interact and, and the way that it can be very predatory for obvious reasons, but there's also this, this, this danger of what is reality. Um, it has a, again, it's not a horror film, but it has a horror film like vibe to it. Like the tone, sure. the tone is very like, man, this is going to go bad and very quickly, but 
honestly, just, I, I added it to my list because I was thinking back on this year. And like I said earlier, I haven't watched as many films, uh, new films this year as I, I would have liked, but that was one that really just balled me over, you know, where you see a film, like, well, I want to know everything about this filmmaker. I want to know what they do next. Um, I, I think that once it hits HBO max and starts, I think it's going to be very talked about. It's already very buzzy. Yeah. Because like, I see a lot of like, especially the hardcore kind of horror, uh, community, is real into it. The people who have seen it at festivals have the same reaction that you do. Um, it seems like a thing that's going to hang around and at least be talked about in yeah. a cult sense, which could be cool for us. Yes. <laughs> so let's jump to your number three, because I only have one movie left on my list outside of your number one. Yeah, I actually have my number one and your number one left. So your number three is Fear Street 1994. That is correct. Which... Um, I saw it twice, and you saw... Five times. Jesus. Yeah, I watched it a lot. It was... I remember when it came out, because I did it three weeks in a row. Um, and you said it... I think you clued me into the fact that it was supposed to be theatrical originally, where they were going to do like a movie a week? Yeah, I was thinking a movie a week was the original idea. And it's based on the Arl Stein Fear Street novels, which were his more... Um, teenage. Uh, they were like the PG-13 slashers of their day. More like the Christmas Goosebumps Pike. was like the PG-rated like kids horror stuff. Yeah, this got into teens and like, it wasn't like they didn't do drugs, but they were, they were definitely more sex-y. Right. Um, there wasn't sex, but... The girls lusted after boys, people dated, they kissed, and there was hardcore mur- murder. Yeah, much more, yeah, not like, oh, we're at Grandpa's Moida. farm and, <laughs> and they're... But this one, I loved. It was from Lee Janiak, and I met her briefly in person at South by Southwest when she was there with Honeymoon, um, her kind of body snatchers, closed room horror movie, which I really liked a lot. And Still she haven't ca- seen it. It's good. Um, she kind of danced around projects. Like she was attached to do the craft reboot for okay. a while and a couple other films. Um, and then landed this and I'm glad she did. And they, you know, as you have 94, 78, which takes place at a summer camp. And then 1666 is like the birth of the evil on this Salem town. witch tri- trial type stuff. Yes. Um, but the best of the three is easily 1994. The first one, it sets the rules for this really kind of, um, fun, supernatural slasher. Um, I love slasher films and it's rare where I see one that kind of does something new. And I think the way that it captured the kind of that teen fun vibe of R.L. Stein. So I read all those books. I mean, I've read like babysitter one through four. Like they're just, a, they're really fun and they really kind of captured that. Well, and it, it uses the mythos from the books too. Cause I collected them uh, when I was a kid and it, it pulls a lot of the mythos from the cheerleader uh, saga. Cause Sarah like fear the, is in. The, yeah, yeah. And all the, the, the backstory there, they changed some of it, but like the fear family and where like, the the town of um, what's it called again? Sunnydale. So it's it's Sunnyvale. Sunnyvale, and then shady shady, Sunnyvale and Shady Side. Yeah, yeah. But it, it definitely has this like really fun vibe. So I think she directed some amazing slasher kills, like some of the grotiest I've seen in a long time. Ooh, the bread slicer. Bread slicer is just it's pretty epic. But also again, the rules that the film sets forth for like there are these slashers who've been brought back from the grave from the past of, of shady side. 
And it, that's it, my problem as the uh, trilogy goes on. Oh, yeah. Is that it brings back the killers and then goes back in time. And I found it repetitive. Like, I don't. I don't hate 78, but it turned me off enough that I still haven't watched 1666. Well, you don't learn anymore. Yeah. That's the thing is 78 is very stagnant. And I get it that some people really uh, connect to kind of the the melodrama at its center and get more into like the teen stuff, which, okay. Yeah. But I thought that the even the melodrama in uh, 1994 was better than 78. Very much Um, so. And it comes back in 1666. Okay. Yeah. it's it's very, it's a really cool concept that I think they did a, a, overall a good job with. But yeah, seventy eight is you know it's supposed to be Friday thirteenth. The first one's supposed to be Scream. They're like basically playing inside these you know films from the past. But I think she's an amazing director. They the films look fantastic too. I, I just love the. It feels like I'm watching a '90s movie when I watch. Uh, yeah, they're very much trying to do Scream, and I know what you did last summer. Yeah. Uh, 78, that, that's the other problem I had with 78 is that stylistically it's still too slick to look like yep. a slasher movie that came out from like 1980 or 81, which I get isn't 100% the point. You're not supposed to make it look like fucking, you know, Friday the 13th or the burning, right. but like, give me something, man. Yeah, I totally agree. But, uh, no, again, just 94 was one that just blew me away. The fact I watched it over and over again. I think did some really interesting stuff with the slasher formula. Um, big fan overall. Nice. So let's do uh, your number two. All right. So let's do your number two. We kind of mentioned it earlier, but Dune um, yep. is my number two. Um, hard for it not to be on my list. I I, I love Villeneuve a lot, um, and I was really excited when I heard he was going to tackle this project. And actually, early in COVID. But almost two years ago now, shit, I decided to finally read all of Dune. I said, if I'm going to ever read it, it's now. Um, and when you read the book, like, it's fucking, it's a weird book. Like, it's a lot of world building, like religion, politics, ecology, um, just the everything. Oh, just fiefdom, everything um, is insane. Mixed with some really, like, kind of heady, weird, like, drugged out, kind of vision stuff. Um, yeah. Real acid trip stuff, real acid trip stuff. And I was like, man, this is going to, I mean, and I, I actually, I like the Lynch movie. I grew up watching as if, as how I got, you know, introduced to the world. Sure. Um, and I think it's, it's has a lot of good stuff to bring. Um, some stuff that didn't work quite so well. It was very not loyal to um, the book, which is, I don't think it should be a dig against a film. Um, this well, one, when you try to cram a whole series into basically like a little over two hours, not the best creative decision. It, it ends with the end of the first book. Right. So yeah, but it also gets yeah, pulling some stuff like information wise from the other books. And it's um, like you said earlier, I mean like the, the, the main triumph of this movie is that it was even done um that he was able to bring it to the screen uh it has that very classic like villeneuve look even when he's not doing sci-fi like brutalist architecture um droning like hypnotic just just rhythms to it yeah i mean you know visually but also musically right Right. he works with people like Hans zimmer who this one like brings some really weird stuff to it but i think also like i would agree it's a film that doesn't 
really affect emotionally. I would, I don't think I did either. Um, but reading the book, like I kind of feel the same way, um, that we are at a certain point in our humanity in, you know, this is supposed to be our future. Um, it's, it's like, it's not supposed to be long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's like, no, this is us in the year, like 10,000 and where we're going to be in the stars. Um, and I love the way that cause we don't use computers anymore. Everything is analog. And I think everyone has become a bit more robotic, um, because of that, like you have your mentats who are, you know, living computers, but I think even Paul as a character, um, you, you're so taught when you're a member of royalty to, I use this kind of language when I'm speaking to this person. It's, it's all, um, very courtly, you know, sure. every, everything is, is based on that, but I think he really captures the vibe of reading the book. I think uh, Rebecca Ferguson is one of her best roles. I think she's she kind of walks away with the movie. She's she's it. I mean, she in my mind because like, Timothy Chalamet is great, but like Paul is not as interesting a character in my mind as as Lady Jessica is, and in the books too because she's basically a Jedi. Yeah, who's also a mom. So it's like she's fighting between like the use the voice. Yeah, it's she's being pulled by. Um, the responsibilities of being a, a Bene Gesserit lady, um, while also being just a mom by being a mom, but all, and also kind of being a concubine to a Lord, um, to a, sorry, to a Duke and, and looking like Rebecca Ferguson and just, yes. Like being this earth shatteringly gorgeous. Talk um, about brutalist architecture, baby. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, I mean, I, I was sad. It was split in two. I think it's, it's for a good purpose. Um, it is a, thousand page book. Um, and sure. I think you definitely need the time to live in the world. And the pacing is very deliberate. You know, it's Plus not I a P man. What's that? I just got a P. Yeah. It's you uh, know, you got to split it up so I can go pee. And that, you know, that's going to be, they'll, re- they'll release it again. I'm sure. I like totally throwing you off when I say shit like this. You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> what, are you talking what do about? I do with that? Um, <laughs> and also I got to see it in IMAX, which was amazing. Like that was, you know, hard not to, be I am. Bo- blown away by. I, I will say that I'm shocked that this is the movie that's saving theaters because I'm like, really surprised when when all the weird pre-release stuff where where Villeneuve was more or less throwing a public tantrum about seeing the movie in theaters, very much like Christopher Nolan was uh, with Tenet, is that I was sitting there the whole time like, do these guys not fucking remember that? Lynch's Dune like almost made him quit movies and like bombed and shit. Like it was just, I don't get it. Like you, you think you're, you're going to hang like Regal and United artists, like their entire future on fucking Dune. But people came out in droves for this goddamn nerdy ass movie. And I mean, it, it's great, but watching it, I even like, cause I saw it right before it came out in theaters and I sat there and I was like, yeah, great move guys. But like, this is the one, this is going to make like five fucking dollars. Man, was I wrong. I was very surprised too, because it's, and Villeneuve's also, he's not an action director. He's kind of no. like, he's like no one in that respect that their action's not that good. No one actually tries. I think sure. Villeneuve, like mostly he likes grandeur. So you think about the attack on the, um, the spaceport, um, in Dune where these awesome, um, Harkonnen, bombs are coming, falling on top of force fields, drilling through and blowing up these ships. It's fucking amazing, but it's not 
you know, thrilling. It's not thrilling. It's not. It's it's a it's it's it's, it's wow. Michael Bay or Tony Scott or any or, of those, or, or you know, or like you Cameron, know. you know, where you're in there. It's, and you, it's removed to a certain degree. Yes, yeah, and and you he'll, he'll cut in for the close ups. He'll cut in for the mediums of like you see, um, you see uh, Gurney Halleck played by Josh Brolin kind of running and stopping before an explosion, fighting some guys. The closest thing is probably the fight where Jason Momoa is fighting off the starter cars, like in right. that hallway. But even that is like not as cool as some other people would make that. It's more about the the, the world building. So I was very surprised that it will, did so well. I will say the other thing that I'm surprised by its, its success is that it treats the audience like they read Dune last week. Like this oh, yeah. book was just a, a major bestseller that came out in like the 2000s. It's like, oh yeah, you've read fucking Dune. It's on the 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 library shelf next to the Da Vinci Code. Like you you read both of them and you're like, no, this is this book's like what, 40 plus 50 years I think old? It was 68 or yes. 58 or 68. Yeah, so I mean yeah. like it it's it and also like back then nerds read it. Like it was Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a it did well and it was a bestseller, but it was like how I first experienced Dune was my nerdy ass uncle John gave handed me a copy like a tattered paperback from the 70s and was like, "Here, I think you will really dig this." And he's probably stoned while he did it. So it's like I I there are just so many factors that were working against this movie being like a massive success that saved theaters that I just, I, I'm still flabbergasted because they even re-released it on IMAX and people went back to like Bob Bullock to see it again. Yep. And I wanted to, that's where I saw it, Bob Bullock, full IMAX and just a gorgeous film uh, through and through. Yeah. So we're down to the last ones here. So I'm going to do my number one, which is... Julia DeCarno's uh, Titan, or Titan, as us English speakers say. <laughs> Titan. Uh, but Titan is, um, man, it's the first time that I've felt the same way as when I, I saw stuff like Videodrome and Blowout and just somebody totally taking cinema and making it her own. Uh, this is obviously her second feature after... Uh, raw, which I I liked. I don't love it the way other people do. I actually uh, bought that second sight Blu-ray, revisited it right after I saw Titan for the first time, and then was like, okay, I see what you're doing here. Um, but Titan is is just so audacious and and doing its own thing and not really caring about whether or not you're on board. Uh, with with what it's doing that I, I couldn't help but just be totally sucked in by it. Plus, it's an incredibly visceral, emotionally affecting uh, film about ultimately like what makes us human and what makes us more than just meat to, uh, to one another. Um, you know, a, a lot of people, especially after it winning the Palme d'Or and being in being so wild and extreme, a lot of people, ex- a lot like Benedetta, uh, describe this movie in a reductive fashion in that it's the movie where the girl fucks the car. And sure, that happens in the first like 10 minutes, but then the movie becomes something totally different um, that that is incredibly human and, and, and touching and the relationship uh, that uh, the, the protagonist, who is a serial killer played by... Uh, 
uh, Agatha Roussel, I believe I'm, I'm pronouncing her first that correct. Movie, right? Um, she'd been in a couple other things, but this is like her yeah big moment. But I mean, she's she's working with Vincent London, who's like a, a icon of French cinema. Has worked with you know Claire Denis. I, I rewatched. Uh, or watch for the first time Bastards, uh, her film that he starred in, which I had never seen before and totally uh, was one of my favorite movies that I, I've seen all year. If you've never seen that one, let me tell you, check that out. Um, but like he puts in a, uh, a totally just flattening performance as this aging firefighter who, who takes her uh, under his wing after she is pregnant and, and disguises herself as his son, as his son, his missing son. And he accepts it because, and for most of the movie, we can't tell whether or not he actually believes it. Is he delusional in his grief? Is he so mentally out of his mind? And, you know, basically like out there that he can't accept that his, his son is dead. will just, uh, take in any love that he can, but it becomes about this bond that they share together to where what starts as a serial killer, like weird horror movie about a girl fucking a car becomes a movie about literally what brings human beings together. And the thing that you, you talked about with Barb and star, um, which I know is a weird comparison, but you talked about how like sometimes that's just the movie that you need right now. And I know that uh, Julia DeCarno, like conceived and, and made, shot uh, uh, Titan before COVID, but was editing it and got to work on it uh, because of COVID, like a little extra in, in post production. But the thing I was I was really taken by on first viewing is that it feels like one of the first post COVID movies of all time, or at least reckoning with the idea that we can't touch each other. So much of her, of this movie is, is flesh on flesh of people fucking killing, caressing, hugging, dancing, sweating, bleeding, coming. Like it's just all the fluids, all the things that feel like all the stuff that they tell us to avoid that we cannot uh, indulge in anymore. And I found I don't, maybe it's a, just a timing thing, but that was the other thing that totally like destroyed me while watching it for the first time because it, it, it felt like somebody yearning to just touch another person again and be able to do so without fear of, of contracting some horrible virus. And then when you get to the final 10 minutes of this movie, uh, it's, man, I, I can't. The last line of this movie, I have difficult, like difficulty even thinking about without like tearing up because you realize what she's actually after, which is just the idea that like we cannot stay apart as human beings. We always have to be, we always have to have a connection. We always have to be together. We always have to be uh, yearning for one another's touch or one another's like spiritual. Uh, caress let's say not again not to be pretentious but i mean this movie just i can't even uh describe just just what it meant the first time and i've watched it five times since like i just think this is one of the great 
masterpieces of our time. It's one of the movies that has completely rewired my brain and I can't wait to watch it like 50 more times because I just think that Julia DeCarnau is the, the, the future of movies. Like that's who I'm going to follow for the rest of her career and her life. As long as I'm here, like I'll watch whatever she makes. No, I, you showed it to me. I think you'd seen it twice at that point. Um, and no, I, I, basically really I hadn't put it on my list, but I, it would be number 11 or higher if I rethought things. Um, I also, I don't think I had obviously the, the level of reaction that you did. Um, I, I loved it. I think one of the things you said about it being similar in your experience to the first time you saw Videodrome, um, was this was a film that I thought also used body horror in a really new way. Um, I feel like since Cronenberg came on the scene now, you know, many, many years ago, anytime you're doing body horror, you're kind of dancing with him a little bit, right? Or you're, you're, you're either commenting on it. And this felt like kind of its own new thing, um, where she took it. And one of the things, you know, for those who haven't seen it, like the trailer is the first like 15 minutes of the movie. And, and so you really don't know what you're in for. And like you said, it takes you to this place you're not really expecting, um, but it's still pulpy. Um, and I think it's it's incredibly gross, too. That's the other thing is that this this really... One of the things that I love about DeCarnau is that, you know, when the French New Extremity came into existence, more or less in the, in the early 2000s, you know, a lot of people point to uh, Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day as being one of the earliest examples, but even she doesn't consider it part of that wave. Like she was just making a Claire Denis movie. You know, a lot of the stuff that was made in the 2000s, uh, high tension frontiers, um, inside, inside, it was all made by men and it was men making movies about women though. A lot of the times women were the central protagonists in these films, uh, particularly inside and high tension. Um, Dakar now feels like she's reclaiming, uh, the French new extremity for her own and and for female filmmakers uh, in France and all over the world, frankly, um, by saying like, no, these are our stories and this is what it means to be inside of uh, not only a woman's body, but a body itself. Because Tatan also has a lot of, let's say, trans allegory to it. Or, or at least it's exploring that idea of what does it mean to be someone inside of another person's flesh. It also goes to something that Cronenberg does play with, is like being post-human. Yes. You know, of what's next. Yeah, I um, called it post-human femme fatale. Very, very much. Or even the idea, it, it plays with similar ideas as 2001. Right. Uh, of the star child, of, of what is next. What is our next step of evolution? Um and there's definitely some with her relationship with him remind me a lot of you know Mary and Joseph, um, and this idea of bringing in this new thing into the world, um, yeah. which I found very powerful as well. Of of again another thing that popped up a, a lot in some of the films we talked about today is, is found family, too. You right. know, blood doesn't matter. It's the it's the family you make. You know, regardless if it's Tatan or you know licorice pizza or or Stillwater or anything, you know. Well, in that way, it it works as an interesting companion piece to Raw, her first movie. And that Raw is all about a a woman reckoning with DNA and her her with the blood existence and what she's passed down from the people that you know. You have no choice but to meet them because that's your family, 
that's what that film is about. Well, this movie is the opposite of that. It's about as you age, what does family mean to you and what does it mean to find those people along the way while also uh, including possibly the, the character from raw in this movie, because the same actress from raw plays the same character or at least a character with the same exact name and who would be the same exact age after her experiences in raw. So it feels like a weird extended universe in her more or less symbolically killing off the idea of, of being stuck with your own genetics and evolving past them, let's say. Yeah. So your number one was my number four, I believe. What is it? The card counter. It's our boy, Paul. Paul Schrader. Um, this was, I saw this the night before my birthday in the theater. Sure. It was playing just like one screen in all of Austin. And of course was, I dropped when I realized where I was playing, I got my ticket Thursday night and just, you know, similar, not in a way that this blew my mind in a way and rewired my brain, but more like it gave me what I want from a Paul Schrader film this uh, is I, I put it on Letterboxd. It, it said this is the Uber Schrader movie. It's it's a hundred percent. It's just it's him just bleeding out of every frame of this movie. It is it's so, a lonely man. Like it takes it it takes it to a lot of extremes too. I mean, like, you know, you see you see this character literally every day in his hotel wrapping everything in sheets and, and covering. So everything is very, you know, pared down. He also have the time he spent in, he liked jail because it was, you know, orderly. And you had these guys who were very, which I think was also pulling on some, um, pickpocket stuff there. Like he always does. Sure. He loves his Brisson and, and a man escaped. But I think this is one of the best films he's done in a long time. And you had said you liked it better than first reformed. Yeah. I think that the there's time. an argument that this is his best movie. It'll take me a while to. It's at least his most movie. Light Sleeper <laughs> right. will always be my favorite. That's my of favorite. His, but like, it, it's the again the Uber Schrader. Well, and this is I think the closest I've seen him do to Light Sleeper. It's well, it's, it, it's very. It's American Gigolo, Light Sleeper. This like they the, wa have, the Walker. Yeah, they all well the three of these even shared the almost same ending yes. shot. Yeah. And, and sorry. Yeah. Correct. It, it is part of his, um, you know, he says, you know, that Travis Bickle was him in his seventies. American Gigolo's him in his, uh, uh, sorry, it was him in his twenties and thirties. Forties was him in light sleeper. Fifties was him in the Walker. Right. And then this would be not going back, but he's still, that's what he's thinking about now in his, I guess, sixties or seventies. Um, there's an interesting uh, idea to kind of throw out in that if you're taking the autobiographical route in interpreting the card counter is that this almost feels like a movie about uh, Paul Schrader talking about being an aging auteur, still being allowed to make movies and how he is recruited more or less by like a producer, which is Tiffany Haddish, who's wonderful in this yeah. and is allowed to continue to apply his very niche craft, let's say um, to continue to make somebody else money. I, I think that there is a lot like uh, matrix resurrections. There is some self kind of reflexiveness oh, yeah. and self uh, critique 
going on uh, with Card Counter, which again makes it even more special for people like us who have watched every single thing that Paul Schrader has ever produced. Yes, um, I never, I never thought of it that way, but it, it, you, you definitely have that similar longing. I love the longing of his films of the the lonely man that like you said who is reaching up for love, you know, and reaching out um, while journaling and, and while journaling, and <laughs> it's you know, it's one of those things like he can be pretentious as fuck. And, but when I'm there and I'm like, this is the pretension I want though. Like there were a couple moments watching it in the theater where I was like, I think Paul Schrader made this movie for me. Like it's so tuned to what I love about his movies that I was like, this is like when they walk through the, the lights, the Christmas, the, the lights. And I was in the music. I was just like, I was like, fucking It reminded me of the sequence in first reformed where they, uh, float together. Yes. yes. Where he was magical. just like, he had a, a, yeah, this magical realism where he just had this idea in his head of like, I want to do this. How do we do this? Yes. Yes. You know, um, the other thing I'll say it is a lot to your point of like, Oh, he made this specifically for me. I had the same vibe from this that I had when I watched zeros and ones is that this is the work of an aging auteur who like, you only get to make this movie. If you're Paul Schrader, just in the same way that you only get to make zeros and ones. If you're fucking Abel Ferrara and people yeah. are like, well, he's a genius, I guess. Like, because again, he's making the same movie over and over again, more or less just with different settings. It's, it's, uh, let's say riffs on a theme or many yes. themes. Yes. But it's uh, as much as we celebrate uh, Ben Affleck, man, what a fucking year for Oscar Isaac, who has this, which is a tremendous performance. Uh, Dune, which he's really, really good in. Scenes from a marriage. Scenes from a marriage. Like he's all over the place and just really, really having the time of his life. Shooting Moon Knight. So Mar yeah, Marvel exactly. property. And, and I... Won't watch that, but you know, shout out Benson and Moorhead. Yeah, good. You know, good for them. Good for him. But yeah. no, I mean that's, that's been as a huge thing for him professionally. You right. know, um, to I guess be in the fold. But yeah, it's amazing. He's had he's had a fucking year, and he's so perfect for that Schrader protagonist. He gets um, it. He he. We talk a lot of this, you know people who are game. You know, he's game for like that. That well, kind of he's, stoicism. He's and, just such a great movie star. He's like, great. He slips into whatever the director wants him to do and just brings this built-in uh, charisma that just completely connects with an audience member because you're like, oh, God. It also helps when you look like Oscar Isaac. Yeah, man. you're a handsome motherfucker. Jeez Louise. Uh, but, man... I'm glad you picked that one because I love that too. But that wraps up our top tens Indeed. of the year. I got to tell you, 2021, pretty good year for movies. Because we just ran through more or less 20 films almost because our movies, our list didn't have any overlap or barely any, I should say. And we got to just rattle these things off. And I think if you haven't seen any of these, go out. A lot of them are available to you right now. Most of them are. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Thanks, streaming, I guess. But Martin, lovely as always. Indeed. And you know what, guys? Thanks for tuning in to Secret Handshake.